Hi, and welcome to a very special edition of the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, uh, David Dolan Thomas, and uh, today I'm going to share audio with you of a talk I give called uh, The Content Strategy of Civil Discourse. And uh, this is basically a talk about how we can do a better job of talking to each other online and in person, and kind of little content strategy tips and tricks and design tricks you can do to kind of make that easier. Um, But the reason I wanted to share it on this podcast is there's actually a good deal of cognitive bias concepts that I talk about here, including um, the uh, uh, fundamental attribution error, which is a really big one, which we'll do We'll get its own special episode at some point, but I kind of wanted to introduce it here. And then we also talk a bit about um, a few other biases as well as we go through. So I just wanted to kind of share that here. Also, I wanted to shout out to all the folks I met at UX Copenhagen. Um, I gave a talk there last week about the design for cognitive bias um, and uh, went over well. We might be sharing some of that audio too, maybe next week. Um, But I know a lot of people said they would start listening. So hi, thanks for listening. Um, uh, so without further ado, this is me giving a talk about, uh, civil discourse and content strategy and cognitive bias. Um, and, uh, this is from LavaCon last year, which is a a content strategy conference. Uh, this was a webinar I gave there. Um, so from, this was actually on election day. So you'll hear me kind of mention a little bit about that. Um, so from LavaCon last year in November, um, and, uh, here it is. Okay, great. Um, thank you all for joining. Um, uh, today we're going to talk about the content strategy of civil discourse, turning conflict into collaboration. Um, uh, just to reiterate, my name is David Dillon Thomas. I'm a senior experience designer here at Think Company. And if you'd like to tweet at me, you can reach me at movie underscore pundit. And I want to start by talking about a little experiment. And you can try this experiment yourself if you can get a hold of an audience or two. What you do is you show this photo to an audience and you ask them, should this person drive this car? And what will happen is you will have a policy discussion. And what you will know by the end of that discussion is who is on what side. You'll have some people saying, oh, old people are bad at everything. They shouldn't be allowed to drive. Other people will be saying, oh, that's ageist. You shouldn't be like that. People should be free to drive their cars. Back and forth. But all you really know at the end is who sits where. Now, if you show this same photo to another audience and you ask them, how might this person drive this car? You will get a very different discussion. You'll get a design discussion. And what you will learn by the end of that discussion is many different ways that uh, that person might drive that car, possible solutions. We could move the steering wheel. We could change the way the dashboard works and all sorts of other things, Um, but a very different outcome. Now, online, we've become very good at having the should conversation, right? We can yell at each other all day long on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll have a very clear understanding who is on what side. What we haven't done as good a job of is having the how conversation. And what we'll talk about today are many different content strategy and design innovations that impact the kinds of conversations we can have, and maybe some direction forward. Now, the story I just told you, and it's a real experiment, comes from David Bornstein, who founded the Solutions Journalism Network. Um, This is a uh, network that's devoted to telling a somewhat different kind of journalism. His whole point was that journalism is very good at 
doing the muckraking story, doing the this is what people are doing wrong story, which is an extremely important function of journalism, but it's not the only function of journalism. His point was we should also make sure we're talking about the positive outliers, right? What's that school system that's consistently scoring high in a repeatable way? How are they getting it done? Let's tell that story too. Now, part of the reason we want to make room for these kinds of stories is obviously the political climate today. So this quote is from a guy named Robert Fersh, and he founded a group called the Convergence um, uh, Center for Policy Resolution. And we'll talk a little more about his work later, but right now I just want to focus on this one quote of his, where he said, over a period of years, I kept meeting people of great decency who had different worldviews, but there wasn't a place where they could meet to bring out the best in each other and find answers that each hadn't considered. Now, buried in this quote are the core tenets we're going to talk about today. First, people of great decency. One of the things we can assume sometimes when we are talking to people who are on the other side of an issue is that they have no decency. That's why they disagree with us, right? They, that there's something wrong with them, right? And he's saying that's not necessarily the case, right? And there wasn't a place, right? This notion of location. One of the things we'll talk a lot about today is how it's very difficult to find a place that actually encourages constructive conversation and how design and content strategy choices actually influence how those conversations go. And then there's this notion of bring out the best in each other, which again is this assumption that the person you're disagreeing with may actually have a best to be brought out and same for you. And finally, and this is I think the key distinction, answers that each hadn't considered, right? We're gonna talk a little later about collaboration versus hierarchy. And this idea that you're walking into the argument or the conversation with imperfect information, right? That you don't actually have the answer and that the whole point of this conversation might be to learn more about the real answer. So these are all elements that we'll get into. Right now, the places, the spaces that we have for these kinds of conversations tend to look a lot like this. This is Thunderdome from Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, and it's a place where two men enter, one man leave, right? And that's the sort of climate we sort of assume now when we try to enter into online or real-life conversations, especially if they're political. And the approach to political discourse these days tends to be as a zero-sum game, right? There has to be a winner, there has to be a loser, and the way we'll find out is by having this conversation. Part of the reason this happens isn't just about the current political climate, it's really a basic cognitive bias that goes back centuries, and it's called the fundamental attribution error. And what it basically says is, I'm okay, there's something wrong with you. So if you see somebody um, speed past a red light, right, they run a red light, the assumption we make about them is, oh, what a scofflaw, oh, they break the rules, they're not very good drivers, they're so impatient, there's something wrong with them, and that's why it happened. If we run a red light, oh, well, I was in a hurry, I was late for work, I was trying to get to the hospital, we look at external circumstances. There was something that was not about me personally, but about my circumstances that made me do what I did. Funnily, we don't make that same assumption when the other person runs the red light, and that's the attribution error. We attribute this bad behavior to something about them personally, not about their circumstance. Now, the way this translates into political discourse um, is summed up by an episode of uh, You Are Not So Smart podcast, which I would highly recommend you check out. Um, but in one episode, they quoted George Carlin, who has this routine that goes something like, if anybody drives slower than you, they're an idiot. If anybody drives faster than you, they must be insane. Um, and we translate that, right? 
we like are driving just the perfect speed, right? We translate that into politics where anybody who's more conservative than me, oh, well, they must be some bigoted, old fashioned, you know, uh, racist, you know, and so anyone who is more liberal than me, oh, well, they must be hippie, dippy, crazy, socialist, communist person. But me, I'm God's perfect creature, right? I'm right in the center. I have exactly the right political views. Now, if you go into a political discussion with that attitude, no wonder we're divided, right? We all think we have it right. And so there's no room for any conversation. This results in a lot of outrage, right? When things happen, our first reaction is to just get angry. And again, this precedes the current political climate, right? If you go back to 2014, right? Um, so, uh, Slate magazine, Slate did a, um, basically a giant advent calendar of rage. Um, they went to every single day in the year of 2014 and found that there was at least one thing that Twitter was losing its mind over. And they created this whole interface where you could click on any one of those days and see, okay, on April 8th, this is what people were losing their mind over. Should they have lost their mind over it? I don't know. But there was enough outrage out there that you could just pick a day at random and find something that drove people crazy. Now, similarly, the uh, last week tonight, John Oliver show, created, and this is an actual website you can go to, Scream Into the Void, where you can type whatever it is you're losing your mind over, hit the scream button, and the words will just go spiraling into that hole with a big screaming sound going, right? And it's this very cathartic thing, right? But it had gotten to the point where we needed stuff like this because that's how we were interacting with the web. Now, I'm going to give you a minute just to look at this cartoon here. But this is kind of how we treat the internet, right? This is kind of how we are used to interacting, right? It's somewhere we go to find people who are doing it wrong and then tell them they're doing it wrong, mission accomplished, right? That's how I use the web. Now, a prime example of this was a few years ago when Starbucks, for whatever reason, decided that they really wanted to have a conversation with us about race. And they had this whole hashtag, race together, it would be on your coffee, and then you would get your coffee and your barista was, I don't know, you were supposed to talk to them about Rodney King. I, I don't know, I don't actually understand how this was supposed to work. I'm really not sure they did either. But at the end of the day, what did happen was Twitter went insane, right? They absolutely lost their mind over this, which, you know, justifiably, it was a really terrible content strategy, right? However, at no point was the question really asked, okay, if that's a terrible version of a productive conversation about race, well, what would be a good version? Like, what do we actually want this to look like, right? And part of the problem is now, you know, Starbucks will never touch that again. And I don't know that that's necessarily the goal, right? It may be that we want to find a way to have that conversation and just shutting down a bad example doesn't actually get us there. So if we can agree on what a productive conversation about race actually looks like, well, then we can have a conversation about how to have one. So along those lines, um, there was a uh, reporter named uh, Ronnie Polineski, um in Philadelphia. This is, is where I am right now, actually. Um, and she had discovered that kind of a core function, right? Something that people need is someone to talk to, right? They, they just want to be heard. So she went out to Rittenhouse Square in Philadelphia and set up this sign, I don't know if you can see on the side here, that said, I will listen with compassion, without judgment, with an open heart. So is there something you need to say? 
tell me, I will listen. That's it. Set up the sign, set up two chairs, and sure enough, person after person after person sat down and talked to her. And it was kind of funny, the way she describes it, people would sit down and say, look, I'm, I'm just going to take a second. And then an hour later, right, they have unburdened themselves. But she came up with a way to try to model a good conversation. And that was, in fact, the service she was providing. And just randomly, I was actually in a Starbucks once where I saw that um, a rabbi had set up a sign in one of the booths that said, I am a rabbi, ask me anything. And people would just come up to him and start asking questions. So there really was a way to have a productive conversation in a Starbucks. It just wasn't by writing it on a cup. Now, before I go any further, real quick, I don't know if anyone has any questions, uh, Felice, that uh, otherwise we can move right on. No questions yet. Excellent. So what I'd like to uh, kind of get into now is some of the economic motivations behind why we're kind of where we are now and why the content strategy seems to favor um, outrage. And uh, one of the going theories is that, you know, if I can make you mad, you are more likely to share this article. You are more likely to click on an ad, right? If I have something that really just enrages you, right? I can make sure I get comments and I get clicks because I wrote this headline that's just going to make you insane, even if you never read the article, right? So there are a few problems with this theory. One from a social standpoint, right? If that's the content you're producing, well, all you're really going to get is argument, right? And if these are social platforms that are meant to be about community, well, you're not really going to have community. You're just going to have arguments. And you get into this trap, potentially, of just having outrage but not action. And, you know, uh, no coincidence, right? Today's the day you vote. Um, the reason, you know, Obama had to say this was he was concerned, perhaps rightfully so, that all people would do is boo. All people would do is yell at the thing they were unhappy about but not actually take action. Now, what's important to make a distinction around here is there is a difference between outrage for outrage's sake and outrage that actually inspires something. And I don't want this talk to just be about boo Facebook, boo Twitter, because frankly, Facebook and Twitter is how you get what you see here. So what you're looking at right now is what happened uh, earlier this year when uh, Trump announced a Muslim ban. Um, people of all races and creeds descended on airports around the country. This is uh, Philadelphia airport. And part of the reason they were able to do that was because they were able to organize through platforms like Facebook and Twitter. And not for nothing, it wasn't just people booing, right? There were actually lawyers on the ground at these airports, you know, getting things done, getting people out of the airports. Um, a similar effort was behind this, which is the uh, Women's March on Washington from earlier this year. This was similarly organized using social media. In fact, Teresa Shook, the person you're looking at right now, a grandmother in Hawaii, uh, day after the election, sits down and creates a Facebook group called the Women's March on Washington. It gets picked up and becomes what it became. So social media in and of itself is not the enemy. It can be used as a powerful organizer. The problem is it's also being used and more predominantly being used to create outrage. But here's the trick. So um, there was a study out of Stanford that looked at how do we decide what to share? And what they found was that any content that produced what they call arousal emotions 
was more likely to be shared. And arousal emotion is really just any emotion that changes your physiology in a way that is more elevated, right? So anything that gets your heart pumping faster, right? So anger is an arousal emotion. But so is hope, so is wonder, so is interest, right? There are all these other ways to get your heart moving a little faster. Now, what they also found, because they thought, hmm, is it really about the emotion? They had people exercise for 20 minutes, then sit down and they were uh, shown content that they could share or not share. They also had people sit on their butt for 20 minutes, and then they showed them the same content to decide to share or not share. The people who exercised were more likely to share content regardless of what emotion the content was designed to inspire. So really at the end of the day, if we really want clickbait, all we need to do is get people to exercise more, right? It's just about your heart rate. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the illusion that making you angry is the best content strategy for sales is perhaps flawed. And in fact, if you just think about it practically, right? When's the last time you got really angry and thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to buy some yoga pants, right? That's said nobody ever, right? That's not really how we think. And just to go back to 50 style advertising psychology, right? I want you to be aspirational, right? I want to show you a vision of a better life. That's what's going to get you to buy. So I think there's some holes in how we're approaching the economics of outrage. I want to talk for a bit now about um, the design, right? We talked about how does the place influence the conversation. So uh, this is uh, Amazon's, one of their more recent designs for how they treat uh, user reviews. And originally, all you really saw was the rating, you know, five stars, four stars, whatever, and then the most recent review was at the top. The problem was, because we are simple creatures, we assumed whatever the first review was, it was the most authoritative. So if it was a good review, we assumed it was a good product. If it was a bad review, we assumed it was a bad product. We generally didn't read much further down. And that's just, again, cognitive bias. It's called recency. And we basically assume if it's at the top of the page, it's the most important thing. Even if we know intellectually, that just means it's the most recent. So Amazon decided to combat this by creating a useful button where you could tell Amazon was this um, review actually useful, and they'll put the most useful content at the top. Okay, that's better, right? Now the most useful thing is there, but again, if it was positive, they'd assume everything was positive and so on. So finally, they said, you know what? We're gonna put the most useful positive review next to the most useful critical review. Now, all of a sudden, your mind is forced to acknowledge that there are two sides to this issue and I have to give them equal weight. Like equal visual weight translates to actual equal weight for you, the reader. So these are important content interventions that impact how you view the content. Similarly, they used to just show you five stars, four stars, nothing else, but they added the histogram, which is this little how many people gave it five stars, how many people gave it four stars, and so on, because it's a critical piece of context, right? If something gets three stars because a lot of people gave it five stars and a lot of people gave it one star, it's very different than it gets three stars because a lot of people gave it three stars. So these are just little choices, design and content choices you can make that have a huge impact on how your consumer is reading the content and potentially how they're posting their reviews. Another design element which may seem innocuous but actually makes a big difference is color. So if you uh, post like a stereo review, 
And let's say the stereo review has some content about how, you know, the stereo system is going to make you feel, but also just some specs on the stereo, right? It's this many hertz and whatever. I'm not a stereo guy. I don't know. But lots of specs, right? Lots of details. If you have a red background, customers will recall the details, the specs, far more than if they have a blue background, in which case they'll recall more, you know, the intellectual side, how it makes them feel, how they think about the content. And generally speaking, this is because red makes us more alert, right? Puts us into a little more of a flight or fright state where we, um, flight or fright, where we basically focus in on the, hyper focus on the details because we think we're about to run or something. Whereas a blue color tends to make us more cool, more calm, more intellectual. So if you're trying to create an environment where someone's supposed to have a conversation about content and not an argument, which color would you pick? And none of this should come as a real surprise. In the real world, we're used to the idea that the environment influences the conversation. If you walk into a very nice restaurant and there's beautiful tablecloth, beautiful setting, beautiful glasses, you don't generally think to yourself, this is a place where I should cuss as loudly as possible, right? You just, it never even occurs to you. If you walk into a fairly dingy bar with really loud music, really loud colors, you know, it's maybe not all that clean, not only do you think it's okay to cuss, you might even feel it's encouraged, right? So the setting is kind of telling you how to behave. The same thing happens online. If you look at a website like Medium, there are these beautiful fonts, these cool blues and greens, right? And everything here is kind of telling you, you know what, maybe you need to up your commentary game here. Maybe you need to behave a little more nicely than you do other places. If you take a look at YouTube's comment section, there's nothing in this design that is telling me to behave. There's nothing here that says I need to up my game intellectually, right? Similarly, Reddit, right? It's bare bones, right? And it's sort of encouraging me to just do or say whatever I want. Essentially, the message is we put the least amount of effort possible into how this place looks, so you should put the least amount of effort possible into how you conduct yourself. Another illusion I want to dispel here is that Anonymity is the root of all evil. It turns out that even when people use their real names, they can be horrible. So um, Monica Lewinsky did a TED Talk, and the comment section on her TED Talk was brutal. I mean, just the nastiest comments you can imagine. And on TED, you have to use your real name. So it isn't necessarily about whether or not um, I'm, I'm using my real name. It does help, however, to start to be very clear about what you expect from your community. So we talked about how design can do that, but there's also explicitly writing down, this is what we expect of you, right? And if you don't behave in this way, we will remove your comment or we will remove you. And this is important for two reasons. One, as a, a content producer or a community manager, you yourself and your team need to understand what are our standards. We need to all agree, say, this is what we think is a good comment, this is what we think is a bad comment. Similarly, if you do in fact block someone's comment, you need to be able to tell them if they ask, this is why we did that. So before we move on, I just wanna check in again, are there any, uh, any questions? No questions here, not yet, um, but folks just love you, so keep going. Awesome. 
Um, so I want to talk for, for a bit about collaboration versus hierarchy. And this is very similar to the how versus should thing we were talking about before. When you're designing a, cont a, a content system or a content strategy, or just when you're looking at an issue and deciding how to talk about it, these are kind of the two ways we tend to go. Now, hierarchy says, this is how it should be. There should be no deviation, right? I've already got the answer. And either you agree with me and you're right, or you disagree and you're wrong, right? There's nothing to learn and it's exclusive, right? The people who agree with me are in the in-group, right? We all hang together and we, 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 we got it going on. And the people who disagree with us, well then, forget them, we don't need them. I don't even wanna to talk to them. And if I do, I'm just gonna yell at them. Collaboration says, here is a problem we can solve together, right? It is always searching for better answers. It's never satisfied to say, we've got this figured out. It says, okay, we've got part of this figured out, but I think we can do better. What else can we learn? And because it is constantly learning, it is also inclusive, right? If I see someone else, I don't ask myself, do they believe what I believe? I ask myself, hey, maybe they have something to contribute. As an example, how we talk about race is hierarchical. So, I don't know if this is gonna play for you, but this is the shame bell, right? And we ring it for people who do it wrong. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that's a bad thing, right? As a black man, I'm very sensitive to the things people say sometimes, right? And I'm on board with the idea of shaming bad actors. When somebody acts up, we want to call it out. The problem is that can't be all that we do. And the way that we do it at the moment really doesn't make any distinction between someone who is maliciously trying to be racist or someone who just doesn't know what they're doing. And it's important to understand that that latter, latter category actually exists, right? To speak meaningfully about race is a skill and let us not fool ourselves that it is otherwise. We aren't born knowing how to talk fluently and non-offensively about race or gender or sexuality. You have to learn, you have to get good at it. And the way you get good at something is by practicing. And of course, when you practice, you mess up. But Twitter allows no room for error, right? If you make a mistake on Twitter, we are going to assume you meant it. We are going to assume that you went out there to maliciously hurt somebody and we will treat you, in, 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 we'll treat you like that. The problem with this approach is if you actually want someone to get good at talking about race, you can't just keep smacking their hand. That doesn't teach anyone anything, right? If I was trying to teach you how to drive a car and the only thing I did was hit your hand every time you did something wrong, you will never learn how to drive, right? And if you have an outrage ecosystem, all it can really do is tell you when you're doing it wrong. All it can really do is smack your hand. Another problem, and this is kind of distinct to the web, is you can't think out loud about race the way you can about technology. A lot of the content on the early web was people just talking about technology and all the new wonderful things that were happening with technology. And a lot of it wasn't finished, polished thoughts. It was blogs about, hey, this is where this might be going. I'm just going to think out loud here. Uh, Clive Thompson wrote a book called Smarter Than You Think. I highly recommend that talks a little bit about this. Now, that's great for talking about technology, right? You're still thinking out through your ideas and people are contributing and you're innovating. If you try to talk about race that way, right, you're gonna get smacked, right? This is a terrible idea. You can't sort of just practice and like figure it all out the same way you can about technology. Another problem is language. 
what is the opposite of a racist? Like, do you have a word that immediately pops into your head that is like, well, of course, the opposite of a racist is a, well, no, it takes a minute. In fact, you might not ever get to an answer. Um, I've given this talk in a few times, and the only one I've heard that even comes close is humanist. Yeah, but it's not like rolls off the tip of the tongue like that's exactly what the opposite of a racist is. Now, that's a problem. If we can't describe in a word what we want, right, because racist is what we don't want, if we can't describe what we want, it's going to be hard to talk about, right? If we don't have the language to describe how to do it right, we've got plenty of words to describe how to do it wrong, which means that's what we're going to get more of. So as an example, um, I do a, uh, a podcast about um, how race is portrayed in different movie genres. And naturally, I decided one day to Google, what movies will make me less racist? What you see is what I got, right? Lists of the most racist films of all time. I got the exact opposite of what I searched for. And as content strategists, this should outrage us, right? This is exactly what we don't want. This is exactly what we tell our clients you should never have. When someone looks for something, you should give them what they want, not the exact opposite of what they want, right? But because our content is should-oriented, right? This is how not to do it, not how-oriented, here's how to do it right. That's, of course, what I got. And again, I want to emphasize, I am not saying free pass for racism, you know, <laughs> don't offend someone if someone's, you know, uh, being racist, just let it slide. No, we should continue to have the should discussions, but it can't be the only discussion, right? If we were to have the should discussion, all the live long day, all we'll ever get, the best we'll ever get is a bureaucracy where people will constantly be on the lookout for doing it wrong and not getting caught doing it wrong. That's not the world I think we're trying to get to. And another very big problem with this is yet another cognitive bias, and this one's called reactance. And I highly recommend looking this one up because it's, it's fascinating. But short version is reactance is the bias that says you can't tell me what to do, right? So there's an experiment where you put like on one wall a sign that says, please do not write on this wall. And on another wall, you write, under no circumstances should you write on this wall guess which wall gets all the graffiti, right? <laughs> and this is especially uh, pernicious in America, right? If you can't tell somebody what to do, you definitely can't tell an American what to do. Like, we do not like that. And this is why political correctness backfired in a big, bad way, because political correctness didn't really try to go into any kind of detail about why we wanted you to use this word instead of that word, or how it felt right to have this word being used instead of that word, or try to relate to you on any level to say, wouldn't you prefer this or that? It just said, bad, you use that word, bad word, use this word instead. You didn't use this word, what's wrong with you, right? It just said, this is what you need to do, and reactants will always say, wait, you can't tell me what to do. I'm gonna do, I'm gonna, do exactly the opposite. Um, and I think we're seeing, right, the outgrowth of that today. So I've spent a while talking about the problem. And if I want to be sort of true to my own aesthetic here, we really need to spend some time talking about the solution. And the good news is, there's actually a lot that we can do. There's a lot of great work being done and a lot of great things that we can do. And so as you look at some of these uh, solutions I'm gonna present to you, I want you to think about you know, your place in them and what you might be able to contribute. So first off, we can start calling out good behavior, right? We can sort of say, hey, you know what? That was a great comment. 
um, we should actually have a, here are the 10 best comments of the year, right? Here are the 10 best online conversations of the year. We should start celebrating these things because two things happen. One, when you celebrate something, you tend to get more of it. Two, people are competitive. If they see there's an award to be had for best comment, they will compete for it, right? They will start to up their comment game in, 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 in order to get it. So let's take our competitive spirit and you know, turn it to our advantage. Um, in the interest of calling out good behavior, so after that whole 10 most racist films thing, I actually decided to create a hashtag called Woke Cinema. And for most of this year, one, one uh, movie a year, I've been trying to call out, okay, here's a movie that I think does a good job of talking about a particular social justice issue or talking about race or whatever it is um, with the hashtag Woke Cinema. And have no illusions. This did not catch on. <laughs> However, I believe it's a step in the right direction, right? Um, I think more of this kind of thing, at least now when I Google, like, what movies might make me less racist, like, stuff like this might come up if there's more of it out there, right? All of you, you know, sort of SEO heads out there know if there's not a lot of content for something, but people are searching for it, it's really easy to rank. We should also think about the tools that we can provide for good behavior, right? And again, not a rule book, but a toolkit for how to talk about race and gender. If we think it's a skill, how can we nurture it? And there are a few tools out there now that are starting to push in that direction. Uh, one is called Civil Comments, and this is a plugin that for your comment section that basically sets it up so that if somebody wants to comment on your post, um, they first have to rate three other comments. Now, this does a couple of really powerful things. First, it makes the person who wants to comment acknowledge the fact that there is such a thing as a good or a bad comment. And even better, it forces them to apply their own standard. And this is important because we will always adhere to the standards we create for ourselves more than any other standard. Um, there's a study out of Harvard that said, if you want people to not cheat on a test, the best thing you can do out of all the things you can try is to make them sign a pledge saying, I will not cheat on this test. That sounds like the weakest T ever, but it actually works. It has like a 90% success rate compared to like all these other ways you might try to keep people from cheating. And that's because once we've told ourselves we're going to do something, it's a lot harder for us to cheat on ourselves. So if I have rated a comment as bad because of X, Y, and Z, and then I look at my own comments I'm about to post and I see X, Y, and Z, I'm gonna change my comment. And in fact, they noticed that a lot of the people who rated comments would go back and change their comment before they posted it. A similar intervention is called Rethink, and 14-year-old uh, Trisha Prabhu figured this out. Um, it is basically a pop-up that if you're about to post something mean to Twitter or Facebook, uh, a little pop-up shows up that says, um, it sounds like what you're about to post may be hurtful. Are you sure you want to post it? 90% of the people who saw that intervention didn't post. Now, this tells us a couple things. One, 90% of the people out there aren't actually evil, right? They're just thoughtless. It doesn't occur to them when they're posting this mean and hateful thing that there's an actual human being on the other end of it. It, it just literally does not occur to them. And the second you point it out, they stop. And the other thing that this tells us is, it only takes two sentences, right? It only takes two sentences to stop them. We keep talking about the state 
of affairs with social media, how woeful it is, the horrible state of our discourse. Oh my God, what can we do? Two sentences. 14-year-old figured out two sentences to stop 90% of it, right? So I think there's hope. We can also think about asking better questions. So not too long ago, um, I was reading some kind of article about people who were rich tended not to index on happiness that much better than people who weren't rich. And I could have easily posted something about, oh, those jerky rich people, they're such idiots, blah, blah, blah. And I'm sure I've gotten a lot of people in the comments saying, yeah, or no, or whatever. Instead, I actually said, you know what? This, there's actually an interesting question here, right? Because if being rich doesn't make you happy, but being poor doesn't make you happy, well, is there an optimal amount of money that will make you happy? Asking that question generated a much more interesting conversation. And by the way, if you're curious, apparently $75,000 a year is what you need. So, you know, shoot for that. Um, we talked a little bit of before about the Convergence uh, Center for uh, Policy Resolution, um, that quote from Robert Fersh. So their job is to bring people together from across the aisle. And I mean people who would never, ever be in the same room together. They get them in the room together and actually talk about solutions. And part of their craft is how they craft the question. So if the question were about food deserts, um, Instead of asking, how can we get healthier food into the supermarket, which, even though it sounds benign, makes a lot of people angry, they ask, how can we work together to shift consumer demand to healthier consumption? Now, this question does a lot of interesting work. You use the phrase, shift consumer demand. All of a sudden, marketers are interested, right? Did you say consumer demand? That's, that's my business. I, I'd love to help. And did you say shift consumer demand? Oh, wait, that means there's a white space that no one else has gotten to yet. I absolutely want to be involved. And then healthier consumption, obviously health advocates, people who are interested in this, they also can get on board with that, right? And what I love about this question is that the first five words, right? How can we work together? You can't answer the question without talking about how you're going to work together. It's baked into it, right? So things like this make it easier for the person you want in the conversation to see themselves in the conversation. If we go back to our first question, how might this person drive this car? It's a good enough question, I guess, but it's a little limiting. What if we asked, how do we do a better job of moving people, right? Because that's why the person was in the car in the first place. They were at point A, they wanted to be at point B. So why don't we ask that question? Now, all of a sudden, public transportation is on the table, right? All these other options that we hadn't thought of. Another thing to think beyond is comments themselves, right? Is this really the best way for us to talk to each other? Uh, last year, NPR stopped having comments. And it wasn't about them just giving up on social discourse. It was about the fact that they already had many many other ways to talk to their, to their um, audience and for their audience to talk to each other. Um, here are just a few, right? They had all these other channels which were much more effective and better at having people have conversations than the comments section, which was getting terrible. And maybe there are platforms we haven't even thought of yet, right? And this is where I want you to start putting your, you know, design and content hats on and start working on what can we build that are better at conversation. So what you're looking at now is GitHub. Some of you may be familiar with it. If you're not, it's basically a code repository, right? If I want to 
create code, collaborate on code, take this code, maybe remix it and do something new with it. This is a place to do that, right? Um, I want to do this for conversation. I want to do this for solutions that aren't necessarily just about code, right? And for those of you familiar with, you know, GitHub, if GitHub were Facebook, it would basically be a place where you go to criticize code, right? But if Facebook were like GitHub, it would be a place where you would have ideas and you would actually try to build off of them and make them better. And if you think about the, the place itself, how it's constructed, right? If I read something, if I read content on Facebook, my basic options are to upvote it, downvote it, or really to give it a thumbs up or a smiley face or some kind of emotional reaction. But that's all I can really do is have an emotional reaction. But what if there were also an ideate button, right? What if there were a button I could press that said, hey, I want to collaborate to make this better. And if you pressed it, something like this might happen. So this is an exercise that I run in real life. I actually ran this at LavaCon a couple years ago. Um, and it's an idea generating um, uh, uh, design uh, exercise. And I'm running, running you through just very, very, very quickly here because I think you could find it valuable. But basically what you do is you have some kind of design challenge, right? Let's say it's how might we do a better job of moving people around. And you get eight people in a room and you say to each one of them, okay, all eight of you need to sit down and write down three ideas for how we might better move people around, right? Three ideas in three minutes, go. After three minutes are done, you say, great, take your three ideas, show them to your neighbor, they will show you their three ideas. You have, you have 10 minutes to take those six ideas, reduce them down to two. After 10 minutes, you've got a bunch of pairs of people who have two ideas. You say, great, pair number one, show your two ideas to pair number two. They're going to show you their two ideas. You'll take those four ideas, whittle them down to two, right? And you can see where this is going, right? Eventually, you have eight people who have four ideas. They whittle those four ideas down to one, and you have this amazing idea. And the reason this particular approach works, and again, it's been scientifically tested <laughs> to produce better ideas, is that if you say to eight people, all right, all of you go off, come up with an idea, and we'll vote on the best one, you'll get a mediocre idea. If you take those eight people and say, okay, I'm going to lock you in this room, you can't come out until you've come up with a great idea, you'll get a mediocre idea. But if you combine those approaches over time, you get the DNA of everybody's best idea all you know, filtering down to this one great idea. And Netflix and other huge corporations have really benefited from this approach. This works great in person. I have yet to figure out how to do it online. But that's what I want to happen when you click the let's collaborate to make this better button. So all of you can work on that now. Uh, another thing we can do is start taking design language and use it for things that aren't quite design, right? So. This is a typical user story framework. Um, for those of you not familiar, it's just a way to design a feature, right? As a blank, I would like to blank so that I can blank. So if it were iTunes, it might be, as an iTunes user, I would like to recommend songs so that I can feel important in front of my friends. I don't know. Um, but it helps you design features. But what if we use this for other things, right? What if it was, as a woman, I would like to be paid as much as a man so that I can pay off my student loans, right? That becomes the framework for a new feature, but instead of a feature, it's actually a social justice standard, right? It becomes an approach to a solution, right? That's grounded in really strong design terms that we know work for things um, that are features. And we're even starting to see this in public policy. So there's a thing called problems-based procurement. 
where you uh, typically, when a city needs to do something like replace all of the street lights, they will put out an RFP that says, okay, we need street lights that are this tall with these specs, and you'll have 20 pages of specifications describing what the street lights have to be. You'll go to the same 10 vendors you always go to and say, whoever's the cheapest will you know, build your, um, well, you get the contract. Problem-based procurement says, okay, um, we need to be able to see when it's dark out. Go, right? It describes the problem, right? Here's what we need to be able to do. Anybody who actually can come up with a solution, great. Now it's merit-based, right? Now it's more about uh, creative solutions that might not have been there if you had just said it has to be streetlights, right? Maybe the cheapest solution is to give everybody night vision goggles. I don't know. But now you've opened things up. And again, it's how you frame the question. And in general, I think we can be get better at using design approaches that we already know about. We've known about design thinking for years and years and years, but let's start apply them to these bigger public policy things, right? And the very basics of design, of human-centered design, is simply, before you design something for somebody, talk to them first. Just talk to them. If we're going to come up with policy for each other, let's spend some time with each other first. To sum up, marvelous technology is at our disposal, and instead of reaching up for new heights, we try to see how far down we can go. Right. This is a quote from uh, Talk Radio. It's a movie with Eric Bogosian, and he was talking about radio, right? The new technology that was connecting us all. But he could just as easily have been talking about how we talk to each other today. Um, and I think that there are rules that we can kind of lay out to try to use the technology that we have now to elevate instead of denigrate. And basically, they're these: one, neither of us has the answer. If we had the answer, we wouldn't be having this conversation in the first place. Number two, neither of us will win. That's not what we're here to do, right? And winning doesn't actually solve anything. All winning does is make one of us feel better for a little while until the problem rears its ugly head again because we were too busy winning to actually solve it. And finally, three, we are here to create something new. And this assumes the best in each other, right? There's a quote that shows up in almost every Aaron Sorkin film, which is along the lines of, hey, let's assume we're both good at what we do. Let's assume that we're both good at what we do and that we can create something new that solves the problem. So the next time you see somebody doing it wrong, ask yourself if there's a how conversation to be had. Thank you. <laughs>